coming Sunday is um, the time when we're going to have our food fest. I didn't say food fight. So who, how many people are bringing banana pudding? That's what I want to know. Are you making banana pudding? No. Alan, is Touch making banana pudding? Where did Alan go? Is Touch making banana pudding? Well, you know, we've, we've got some recently transplanted Yankees who've come into this congregation from Connecticut, and banana pudding is not something that's on the table in New England. And we've been introducing them to good food. You know, collard greens and banana pudding and barbecue. Okay, so that's that's on on um, on Sunday. No Bible class Thursday, the twenty eighth, and then on uh, the next week, on that next Tuesday, there'll be no Bible class. And then I've got five or six people now who have indicated uh, a desire to be baptized, and so we're going to be working on that date, but we need to get that settled up um, probably sometime in December or early January because I'll be leaving for Kiev on the right around the 15th. And we have a special guest speaker it's not a video. Special guest speaker for that week. So, I mean, for a Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. So that's going to be uh, uh, going to be special, and you won't want to won't want to miss that. Okay, and then there may be others who don't have a um, <clears throat> don't have a. Um, uh, Email like Gene Brown back there, who's gone back into the Stone Age. I didn't say Stoned Age; I said Stone Age. <laughs> but um, uh, my father-in-law Ed Dries, uh passed away last night. Uh, he was down in Mexico. He lived there for many years, and he was in Mexico. This was expected. He's been in a nursing home. Somewhat expected, and uh, so they will. He'll be cremated, and then at some point they're going to inter him at uh, Sam Houston at the VA Cemetery at Fort Sam in San Antonio, um, probably within the next two or three weeks. So appreciate your prayers for the family. How shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are prepared, ready to study the word this evening spiritually in right relationship to God the Holy Spirit. Scripture says that when we sin... We stop walking by the Spirit and start walking according to the sin nature. And so we have to recover simply by uh, putting our faith in, uh, uh, just by uh, uh, confessing our sins, admitting, acknowledging our sin to God the Father. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's so wonderful to know that your grace has provided everything that we need in life, that no matter what we face in life, no matter what the challenges, no matter what the triumphs, no matter what the heartaches, no matter what the difficulties may be, we know that you sustain us. Your grace has given us the wonderful promises of your word. Your grace has given us God the Holy Spirit who uh, comforts us with your word. You have given us uh, believers who... Uh, we get to know and who we love, who also encourage us and strengthen us from your word. And we have solid congregations who are effective testimonies before the angels and before mankind. 
Father, we're thankful for so many different things that you give us. And, Father, as we study in the life of Paul now, as we encounter this time when he goes into uh, Jerusalem, we've studied his great love for his people, the Jewish people, in our study on Romans on Thursday night. But here we see him going into his homeland, going into Jerusalem, where he will face uh, uh, rejection, persecution, brutality, and, Father, we just uh, are encouraged by his steadfastness, his focus on the mission that you gave him, and we're reminded that we've got a similar mission. Father, we pray that you would encourage us from your word this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in Acts chapter 21. Acts 21, at the end, the conclusion of Paul's missionary uh, third missionary journey, and he has come to Jerusalem. We studied, got right to the end last week when he came from uh, Caesarea by the sea to uh, to Jerusalem. And this is where we're going to begin uh, this evening. Now, what's interesting in this section is, and we'll get into more of the details as we go through it, but this is one of those passages where we, we get confronted with the reality of uh, the difference uh, between grace and law. Because Paul is going to do something that has led some people to think, well, Paul must have been out of fellowship this time because he took a vow and he's going into the temple. And doesn't he know that, that the law is dead, is, is dead and no longer in effect? Well, of course he does. Uh, he's, he's the one who told us that. Uh, so that's not what's going on here. It has to do with culture. It has to do with tradition and history. It's sometimes it's not what you do. It's why you do it and how you do it. There are p- people who get baptized for all kinds of wrong reasons. That doesn't mean that baptism isn't correct. There are people who uh, live lives of strict morality, not because they're trying to curry favor with God or gain his approval, but because they've responded to the grace of God in their lives and they want to live in a way that, that pleases them. But you can, and those are two examples of people doing it the right way. But you can do a right thing a wrong way and think that by getting baptized you get saved or by getting baptized you get an extra dose of the Holy Spirit uh, by going to church that God is going to bless you. You stroke God, he'll stroke you. Uh, this is This is wrong. It's it's legal. That's the essence of legalism. The essence of legalism is not having absolutes and saying that as believers we should live our lives according to those rigid absolutes related to the protocols and the principles of the behavior of the, of, of the royal family of God. But that that that's not the basis for getting into the royal family of God, and that's not. The, the basis for remaining a member of God's royal family. So we look at this distinction between grace and law and understand that there is a place for differences related to cultural observances and traditions that may not be the same as ours. And that's hard for some, some people to grasp cultural differences. Why do those people do it differently than we do. And it's not because it's related to uh, better or worse. It's related to culture and history and traditions and things like that. So we get into that in the heart of this particular passage. Now, starting with verse uh, 15 through, or actually verse 17, uh, through the end of Acts in Acts 28:31. We're going to focus on five major uh, defenses that the Apostle Paul brings, apologias, that's the Greek word, apologia, not apology, but making a legal defense or rational defense of what one believes or one's position. And Paul will make five of these, and they're somewhat repetitive. In two of them, he will repeat what happened on the road to Damascus. In each of those, he gives a little bit of information that wasn't included in the Acts 9 description, and they're not, and they're unique to those, um, those, uh, 
episodes and those descriptions that he gives. We learn uh, a lot more about the Apostle Paul as he presents the gospel, presents what God has done in his own life. And so this this is a major element in this section from Acts 21.17 to 28.31. So we have roughly probably about a little more than seven full chapters, a little bit into an eighth chapter. Remember, 21.17 is halfway through chapter 21. Uh, so it's about seven and a half chapters worth of material, a uh, vast majority of which is going to be um, Paul's uh, Paul's speeches. So what we see in this first section in 2117 down through 2330, I'm going to give you a little bit of a bird's eye view here, down through 23 chapter, uh, or chapter 23 verse 30, uh, we're going to see Paul's uh, the brutal beating, his subsequent arrest in Jerusalem, and the following legal hearings. And then in verse uh, 31, they're going to uh, move him uh, out of Jerusalem. So that begins the uh, second section, which is going to focus on the uh, time that he is in uh, Caesarea Maritima or Caesarea by the Sea, and that's in uh, 2331 to 2632, 2331 to 2632. He spends two years there, and then he uh, he's still not being released, and so he appeals as a Roman citizen, as is his right. He will appeal to uh, Rome to be heard by Caesar, and so he's put on a ship and following a long sea journey and a shipwreck. Uh, he will eventually come to Rome where he goes under uh, house arrest and we conclude the book of Acts just before he uh, is to be heard by Caesar. So when Acts ends, we really don't know what happens to Paul. Now what we put together afterwards is that he is released after that first imprisonment. He probably makes his way to Spain. He makes his way back over to what is now or what was Yugoslavia, the area of the Balkans, and uh, he probably made his way back to Greece before he's arrested a second time and taken back to Rome, at which time he will be uh, he will be martyred. So that kind of gives you a little bit of the overview. Now, as we look at this first section from twenty one seventeen to twenty three thirty, we see that Paul is uh, comes into Jerusalem, and as he arrives in Jerusalem, he has a leadership meeting with James who is the leader of the church there. This is James, the half-brother of the humanity of our Lord. Has, he's, the, uh, he's not an official leader. It doesn't, there's not a hierarchy there. He's not, uh, later literature refers to him as the bishop of Jerusalem, but there's no, he, he's never referred uh, to by that title in Scripture. By virtue of his uh, relationship to the Lord in his humanity and by virtue of his own spiritual maturity, he's viewed as the key leader among the Christians, the Jewish Christians in, in Jerusalem. But there are also a number of pastors of churches. It's a very large Christian community, as we'll see uh, by this time. And so there's a number of pastors in the Jewish community in Jerusalem. And so Paul is going to have a meeting with them. And one of their great concerns is that, that Paul has been um, slandered tremendously in the Jewish community. And so they put up a... Uh, <clears throat> a uh, uh, option or strategy to deal with that that involves him going to the taking a vow going to the temple and when he goes to finish the vow uh, in fulfillment of the law a major riot breaks out and here you have uh, uh, 15 20 30,000 people possibly in the temple precinct and they're all seeking Paul's life uh, he is the he's viewed as the enemy, and he is physically beaten and brutalized until suddenly he is rescued, not for the purpose of rescue, but because the uh, uh, the, the the Roman soldiers that are stationed at um, uh, the fortress Antonio, named for Mark Antony, 
uh, are there to keep a lid on the Jewish people. Remember, the year here is 57. We're within uh, about 10 years of the Jewish revolt, nine years of the Jewish revolt. So there's a lot of hostility towards Rome. There's a lot of undercurrents of opposition, uh, and not just against Rome, but against each other. One of the things that, that you learn about this period of the Jewish revolt is the Jewish people had fragmented into so many different uh, groups of zealots and others that, that they hated each other as much as they hated the Romans. And the arrogance does that, and people just get so self-absorbed that they're the only ones that are right, and it just causes further and further fragmentation, not unlike what we're seeing in politics in the U.S. today. Uh, it, it destroys civility and destroys any sense of, of uh, communication and any sense of, of being able to cooperate and work together. And so everybody's just uh, hostile to Paul. Now, it's not the believers that are, but these are the uh, Jew, Jews who have not accepted Christ as Messiah that are trying to kill him. And the Romans uh, stop the riot, uh, which rescues Paul. They arrest him, and then um, the Jews falsely accused, have falsely accused him of bringing uh, Gentiles into the temple. So the tribune takes Paul back to the, to, uh, to the fortress Antonio and is going to have him flogged when suddenly Paul pulls his ace in the hole, which is his Roman citizenship, and lets the tribune know that he is a Roman citizen, so he uh, backs off from punishing Paul. He'd also misidentified Paul. Uh, all of that means that Paul is, uh, he gives him a little more, uh, gives him a little more respect, and then Paul asks that he speak to the crowd. So Paul will defend himself before the crowd. That's the first of his, uh, defense speeches, and they just, after, uh, after a while, they just riot, and they cut him off, and they riot. He can't finish uh, his message. And then uh, the next day, he's taken before the entire Sanhedrin, and again, uh, doesn't get very far. And following that, the Lord tells Paul that he is going to, that he, the Lord, will defend Paul uh, before Caesar in Rome. Paul is evacuated because it's such a hotbed of uh, hostility in Jerusalem. So Paul's going to be evacuated to uh, the to Caesarea by the sea, which is where the procurator resides, uh, the proconsul, and this is where he will be held uh, for the next two years, and he'll get a chance to to witness to two different uh, proconsuls, Felix and Festus. So finally, that doesn't get anywhere, and he will appeal to Rome, and following a long journey, he goes goes back to Rome. So that gives you the flyover of what's coming up. So let's start off with our section in uh, Acts 21.15. After those days, that is those days where he heard the message, the warning from Agabus the prophet, the days when he was in uh, uh, down at Caesarea uh, Maritima, uh, they packed, they left for Jerusalem. Uh, some of the disciples, that is some of the other believers from Caesarea, accompanied them along with a uh, Jewish believer by the name of Nason of Cyprus, who is uh, part of the diaspora. And he comes and he is now living in the land near Jerusalem. And so they're going to stay with him during their time in Jerusalem. And as they came to Jerusalem, they are welcomed by the brethren. So there is, and what we'll see is there's a large number of believers. This is a feast day. It's the day of Pentecost in AD 57. It's on the verge of the, of the feast of Pentecost. And according to Josephus, during these major uh, festivals, these th- there are three annual feasts. There's uh, Passover, Pentecost, and Yom Kippur, where all Jewish males are required to make a pilgrimage to the temple and required to be there. And Josephus said that, that the ranks, I mean, that the crowds in Jerusalem would uh, increase to uh, several hundred thousand. The, the normal population was about forty to 50,000, and it would increase tenfold or more uh, during these uh, these times of these pilgrimage feasts. And so this is a time when, when there's a lot of people in uh, in Jerusalem, so we read here that they uh, arrived in Jerusalem, and in 21:18 we read on the following day, 
Paul went with us to James. So this is when they have their leadership meeting with James and all the elders. These would be the pastors of the various uh, congregations of Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Now, what we've been dealing with with Paul is Paul's ministry to Gentiles. And in ministering to the Gentiles, one of the major issues that came up was what's the, what, what is required of Gentiles in terms of their relationship with the law? And at the Jerusalem Council and in Galatians, the first epistle to, I mean, Paul's first epistle, which was the epistle to the Galatians, Paul made it clear that Gentiles are not required to obey the law. And he talks about uh, that anyone who requires that makes themselves a slave of the law, and this is in contrast to grace. But at the same time, if you remember, when we studied this this issue, when Paul wrote First, first Galatians to the uh, people he had gone to on his first uh, missionary journey in the south-central part of mod- what is now modern Turkey, Lystra, Iconium, and Derby, that one of the young men there who, was, who had become a believer was Timothy. Timothy's mother was Jewish, but his father was Gentile. And it was known throughout the community that he had not gone through a, a bris ceremony when he was an infant. He was not circumcised, so he was not identified with the Abrahamic covenant, circumcision being a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, Paul, when he went back through on his second missionary journey, uh, insisted that Timothy be circumcised, Acts 16.3, that Timothy needed to be circumcised, and if he is so down on the law, why is he mandating that? It's culture. He wasn't mandating that Timothy be circumcised because it made him more savable or more spiritual. That's what was going on previously in Galatia, was false teachers had come in and said, you know, you really don't have the full gospel. You really aren't going to experience everything God wants for you unless you're, uh, unless you're circumcised and unless you follow the law. Uh, you're not going to get truly saved. You're not going to get truly sanctified unless you are circumcised. So it was not grace alone. It was, uh, faith plus works, uh, faith plus work system. So, but Paul is practical also, and Paul recognized that if Timothy is going to be accepted in the religious communities of the Jews in the in the cities and towns that they go to, uh, he's going to have to be circumcised. It's a, a for a cultural, traditional reason of acceptance, so he wouldn't be viewed as an unclean Gentile, and in or, so that he could have a hearing. For the gospel had nothing to do with a spiritual benefit. And that's the same kind of thing we see for Jews obeying the law is that they did so not for a spiritual reason, not because it made them more savable or made them more, uh, made it, uh, made them more sanctified. It was simply because they, that was part of their history and part of their tradition to follow the Torah. So on the following day, Paul goes with, uh, with us, and interestingly enough, this is uh, the last time until we get to the last couple of, of chapters in, uh, in Acts that we see the pronoun us. We don't know exactly where Luke went. Uh, possibly he is uh, traveling around uh, Judea and Samaria in, and Galilee, interviewing everybody who had anything to do with Jesus and writing the Gospel of Luke. But this is the last time where he uses that first-person plural indicating that he's present. So he's present at this meeting. The following day, Paul went, w- went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Now, who is this James that we find mentioned here in Acts 21.18? There are four, maybe five James identified in in the scripture. This is his name. And the Greek, it's written up there in Greek, and I transliterated it uh, for you, uh, Jacobos, uh, which is a uh, Hellenized form of the Hebrew Yaakov, Jacob. Now, when you go from some languages to other languages, the J is pronounced more like a Y or an I. This is why uh, Yeshua or Yeshua is Jesus' name, but the Y becomes a J when it comes over into English. In Greek, it's an I. 
and that's how the his name begins in Greek. It's Jesus. So uh, Jacob, uh, Yaakov, becomes Jacobas, and this comes into Latin as uh, Jacobus or Jacobus, which is why you'll refer to people who were followers of King James as Jacobites, and why Jake or Jack is a nickname for James. You didn't know that? Because they derive from Jacob. So that's one of those weird things in English where these these uh, names are uh, overlap. So if you're looking at the epistle of James in the New Testament, it's the epistle of Jacobus, not James. You look a long time to find James' name there. So this is his name, and there are several James that are mentioned. The more uh, well-known James is James, the brother of John, uh, who are usually mentioned first in the list of the disciples. They also refer to as the sons of thunder, the two sons of Zebedee. Their mother was Salome, who was a cousin of Mary, the mother of Christ. And that's not who this James is, because uh, James, the brother of John, was martyred, was killed for his faith, by Herod Agrippa I in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The second candidate among the disciples was James the son of Alphaeus, but we don't know anything about this James the son of Alphaeus other than he shows up in the list of all the disciples, but he's never talked about other than that. There is another James mentioned, James the Lesser, and there's a lot of debate because some people think that the term James the Lesser also referred to James the son of Alphaeus. Others think that James the Lesser was another individual. And so there's uncertainty there because nothing is really known about either one other than that those names are mentioned. And then there's another James, the father of, of Judas. But this James is James the a half-brother of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by this time, uh, the date here is approximately 57, uh, late May, early June of A.D. 57. We're 13 years from the destruction of the temple, and we're uh, nine years from the beginning of that uh, Jewish revolt that begins in, uh, in 60. James will be martyred, uh, in uh, 62. So he's got five years left of, of, of his life and ministry uh, before he too will be, uh, will, will be martyred. The other apostles have all scattered around uh, the world at this time. They're involved in different places, uh, different geographical areas, North Africa. Thomas makes it to India. Peter makes it to uh, Babylon and ministers to the largest Jewish community in the world at that time uh, outside of Israel, which was uh, in Babylon, those who had not returned to the land. And then the others were traveling in different different areas, some in Asia Minor, some going up into what is now Ukraine, uh, some making their way down into uh, Arabia, but they're all gone. So we just have James, the half-brother of the humanity of Christ, left. And some think that he might be an apostle because of Galatians 1.19. Galatians 1.19 says, uh, Paul says about his first visit to Jerusalem after he saved uh, in Acts uh, 9, we're told that he saw none of the other apostles except James. Now, the way it's read in English, it looks like James is part of the other apostles, but that's not necessarily how the Greek reads. It just means he didn't see any other apostles, indicating no one else. The only person he saw other than Peter was James. And James is not identified anywhere else that he's mentioned in the scripture by the title apostle. He is the leader of the, viewed as a leader of the church uh, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, James is listed uh, first. Whenever you have a list of the brothers, uh, the half-brothers, that is, of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, remember, uh, because of the virgin conception, Joseph is not his father. So of his siblings, they are 
uh, the, the children of Joseph and Mary. There were four brothers that were named James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And there's also a reference in Matthew 13:56 to all of his sisters. Now, if he only had one sister, it would be his sister. If he had two sisters, it'd be both sisters. So if there's more than two sisters, then there would, it's all of his sisters. And it could be, uh, three, four, five, we don't know, it's not named, but there are at least, uh, seven siblings, uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. So he had a rather large family, and this would also be true of James. Uh, Paul identified, uh, James as one of the two leaders of the church in Jerusalem that he met with, uh, three years after his own conversion in Galatians 1.19. And then in the Gospels, he's mentioned by name only twice, and that is uh, as part of the list of the brothers of, of Jesus. And he would have been with the brothers that came to uh, came with Mary to try to dissuade Jesus from his ministry in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. And he was also probably one of the two brothers who accompanied him to Capernaum in John 2:12. So they um, later on, he's with the brothers who try to persuade Jesus to leave Galilee and go to Judea at the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles in John 7, 3. And at none, no point in Jesus' life during his ministry were any of his siblings saved. I've often enjoyed speculating about what it must have been like to be a little kid. It's bad enough to be growing up in a household with a bunch of siblings, and you're always compared to your older sibling who's better. You know, why can't you be like so-and-so? Well, it's really bad when your older sibling really is perfect, and he's already established a pattern for you, and, and, and so your parents are always say, why can't you be like Jesus? Well, wait a minute, Mom. He's God. That's why I can't be like Jesus. He, he doesn't have a sin nature. Remember the virgin birth and all of that? He's, but you never hear that. So he, they grew up and it was a normal family. Now, Roman Catholic theology tries to make brother mean cousin or extended family member because of their doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. So she's not just having a virgin conception and birth, but she stays a virgin. But that flies in the face of the normal uh, use of language, that these are his uh, actual brothers and sisters, uh, according to the, the uh, humanity. James is saved, though, after the resurrection. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that Jesus appeared to James along with Peter and some of the others in resurrection appearance, and that's the time that James becomes a believer and becomes a leader eventually in the uh, in the church in Jerusalem. And because he had uh, witnessed the resurrection of Christ, this, this was also uh, would give him prominence in the church in Jerusalem. So as James stayed in Jerusalem, he became the practical leader recognized by his own personal spiritual maturity as well as his physical relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that he had seen the risen uh, risen Lord, all of these would have uh, given him some, a, a measure of respect, a unique measure of respect with, within the community. Now, James was known as the just, according to a second century writer, Hegesippus. He was also known as camel knees because he spent so much time praying on his knees that they were calloused. And, um, and there, there are certain, uh, certain hyperbolic statements and exaggerations made about James. But one thing that we can say for sure is that he seemed to be uh, very rigorous in his observance of the Mosaic law. Not because he was a Judaizer, not because he was legalistic, but that's his background, that's his tradition. And when we look at the Jerusalem Council uh, in Acts chapter 14 and their deliberations about uh, uh, what should be expected of Gentiles, James shows a tremendous amount of grace and wisdom in uh, how he states what what should be expected of the of the Gentiles, and this is going to be reiterated in a in a summary statement here in Acts chapter twenty one, when we come down to verse twenty five, uh, he he says, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, 
we've written and decided that they should observe no such thing. That is, they, they're not required to observe the law or vows or any of those things, only that they should keep themselves from the things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Those were the same four things that they mentioned in, in uh, uh, Acts chapter 15 at the end of the Jerusalem Council. So uh, in Acts 15, we have the Jerusalem Council, and James speaks, Peter speaks, and this is and Paul speaks, and this is the summation given by James. So he's not a legalist, but personally, he was apparently very rigorous in his uh, observance of the law. He lived uh, in Jerusalem, the tradition says, among the very devout. Uh, yet he was very grace, very much grace oriented. Uh, tradition says that he was. Uh, martyred for his faith in, in 62. That's really all that we can say for sure. Uh, there's one account that says that uh, he was so uh, so rigorous in his observance of the law that uh, that the Jews didn't re- realize that he was a a Christian, that, that what he believed about Jesus because he was so devout in his observance of the law. Uh, once it was finally discovered that he was, he was taken out to the uh, wall of the temple, where he was where he was stoned to death, and when that happened, uh, he was preaching the gospel to them as they as they stoned him to death. Uh, there, there's a story, legendary probably, that a priest tried to stop the 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 murder, but a fuller, that's someone who uh, beats out the impurities in wool and prepares the cloth, ran up and used his fuller's club. Uh, to beat James to death. All we know for sure is he was martyred for his faith around A.D. 62. Uh, Paul comes to this group, James and the pastors, and gives a report in uh, verse 19 we read, when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And so they respond to that in a tremendous way. They are very happy with the results of Paul, of what they've heard about Paul's, uh, missionary journeys, how he has taken the gospel to the Gentiles. Now remember, they're still living within what we would call today an extremely religious, orthodox type Jewish environment in Jerusalem where they don't have any contact with the Gentiles, and yet they understand what God's plan and purpose is to include the Gentiles in the church and that uh, the times of the Gentiles are underway, and so they are quite thrilled uh, with that response. And they say to him, you see, brother, and the use of the term brother indicates, again, that they recognize uh, that he is a fellow believer in the ministry, and that, and then they say, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed? And they're talking about those that are in Jerusalem at this time. Because the, argue, the argument here is, we got a problem. There are uh, some radical elements here in the Jewish community that are so hostile to you that they've been spreading uh, the big lie about you. They've been telling things that are uh, that are, that are they're, they're so unbelievable that people. Uh, recognize that, that that they must be true because who who would imagine doing such a thing? So it's it's a, the big lie technique which says if you tell a lie uh, that's big enough and bold enough for long enough, people are going to believe it just because it seems so incredible that it must be true. And so they were spreading these lies about Paul, and they're coming up with a strategy here to counter the slander that has been brought against Paul. So they start off by saying uh, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. Basic terminology for believers. So they're talking about numerous Jews, and the term myriads is a term that literally refers to about 10,000. And so when he talks about many myriads, it's not two myriads, which would be about 20,000. It's many myriads. So it could be 30, 40, 50,000 uh, Jewish Christians that are in Jerusalem at this time. Now, Jerusalem, remember I pointed out earlier, Jerusalem has a population of about forty to 50,000. 
and it would swell to anywhere from 500,000 to maybe three-quarters of a million during a feast day. And so there could have been uh, as many as 10 or 20% of the Jews gathered for, the, for Pentecost uh, at this time might be believers. Now, the ones that are going to cause the riot are the ones that aren't believers. The believers aren't going to riot against Paul. It's the unbelievers that are going to riot against Paul. So over the uh, two decades, over the 20 years or so since the uh, church was given birth to on the day of Pentecost in AD 30, uh, AD 33, there's been quite a growth among uh, Jewish believers. And then we're told that they not only have they believed, but they're all zealous for the law, not in a wrong way, not in the legalistic way of the Judaizers that were hounding Paul's steps all through his missionary journeys and stirring up opposition to him and accusing him of the same things that he's being accused of here is that he had uh, fallen away from Moses, he had apostatized from Moses, and that he was uh, telling people not to be circumcised, telling the Jews they didn't need to be circumcised, uh, telling them to violate the law. Uh, These are Jewish believers who are on target spiritually, they just have a tradition and a heritage and a history of the Mosaic Law. They're not going to change that, but they're not observing the law for reasons that are wrong. They're not thinking it brings any kind of spiritual value to them in the sense of making them saved or making them uh, sanctified. So they're all zealous for the law, and then we read Acts twenty one twenty one. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. So the first day refers to who? That refers to these Jewish believers. So their this is their dialogue as their uh, as Jewish believers as they're trying to uh, explain the gospel, explain the identity of Jesus the Messiah to other Jews. What they're hearing back in opposition is that. Wait a minute, this, this guy Paul is just all against, it's anti-Judaism, it's anti-Moses, and that's what Paul is. And Paul teaches uh, all the Jews uh, that are living out in the diaspora among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. And the word here for uh, to forsake Moses is a word that means to apostatize from Moses saying that they ought not to circumcise their children. So this, the, you, first you have the general statement uh, that they are to abandon or apostatize from Moses. And how are they to do that? In two ways. First of all, the children don't need to be circumcised. And second, the children uh, should <clears throat> that the children don't need to walk according to the customs. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement here because there's a little background here that, that you ought to be aware of. A part of that goes back to the phrase in verse 20 that saying that they are all zealous for the law. The term zealous for the law had a rich background. It was used in one of the apocryphal books in the Old Testament. I remember the apocryphal books that we have in, uh, in Roman Catholic Bibles come as part of the Old Testament. First Maccabees, Second Maccabees, uh, Judith, Tobit, uh, some of those books. Uh, they're not part of the canon of Scripture, but there's some good history there. And you can benefit and learn some things about uh, the Jewish history between the close of the Old Testament and opening of the New Testament by reading in those books. And First Maccabees tells the story about the Maccabean Revolt. And what was happening at that time was that the and during that time, the Antiochene, that refers to uh, Antiochus, uh, the Antiochene family, uh, Antiochus was the first, uh, he had been a general of, uh, of Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great died, the Greek uh, empire was split into and divided between four generals. Uh, Antiochus or Antiochus was given the uh, area of modern Syria and uh, eastern Turkey. And uh, they were constantly battling with the Ptolemies. The last Ptolemy was Cleopatra, uh, fighting with the Ptolemies. And the area between Syria and Egypt is where? That's Israel. And so they're constantly fighting over that territory to see who's going to control that territory. And after about 150 years, the Egyptians began to lose control. The the Antiochenes gained control, and they 
just viciously persecuted the Jews. In fact, under Antiochus Epiphanes, they passed laws that it was a death penalty offense if male infants were circumcised or if they found even a letter, even a scrap, even a, a torn part of a page of Scripture in the home of, uh, of any Jew. They would be destroyed. So those who were zealous for the law uh, is a term that referred to the faithful Jews who stood up against the Antiochenes and against the Jews that wanted to just assimilate with the Hellenistic uh, and pagan uh, uh, views of the day. And so uh, they're zealous for the law, and then we also have this issue coming up about circumcision. This In, in Judaism, circumcision is like a sign of patriotism because it's not just related to the Mosaic law. There are certain strictures given uh, and instructions given in the Mosaic law, but it was a sign of being a Jew. It's a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Even today, the reason Jews should be, Jewish males should be circumcised is not because of the Mosaic law. It's because of the Abrahamic covenant. They're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this gets right to the heart of what it means to be an ethnic Jew, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, in terms of circumcision. And then the term customs would indicate not just the customs of Moses, but it would also include uh, for them the the teaching of the rabbis and the Pharisees that came out of the time of the um, of the captivity. So they're they're really accusing uh, uh, Paul of being more than just a religious apostate. They're accusing him uh, of being uh, of being a traitor to everything Jewish. And that's not unusual even today among among Jews when somebody converts to Christianity. They, they, it, it, I asked a Jewish friend of mine one time, I said, how is it that you can deny Moses, that you can reject creation, you can deny everything in the Torah, you can be a Buddhist, and, and you can still be, a, be Jewish, you can be Hindu and you can still be Jewish. You can be an atheist and still be Jewish. But if you're a Christian and believe everything about the Old Testament is true, it, it's just that you've added Jesus as the Messiah, then you can't be Jewish at all. And I didn't get an answer to that. I, I just got a, a look like that thought never occurred to me before. But that's the way it is. There's such an antagonism towards Jesus as the Messiah within the, within the Jewish, uh, Jewish community because they view that anyone who believes Jesus is a Messiah, they, they have been taught since they were in diapers that that person is hostile to Jews. And that's why there's, there's still within the Jewish community today still a lot of resistance to, and misunderstanding about why evangelical Christians support Israel. And that's one of the reasons why uh, I like to have some of these events that we do where we invite members of the Jewish community to come so that they can feel comfortable. They're not evangelistic targets. They can come. We can have a speaker like Yorm Edinger or Vita, or in February, uh, mid-February, we're going to have um, a Christian here uh, who is uh, uh, the uh, Susanna Kokanen, who's the head of the Christian desk at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. But this will be an, also an open invitation to the Jewish community because it helps to break down those barriers uh, that have been created by a lot of misguided uh, Christians. And, of course, you, you all know that a lot of that led to the extremes of Christian anti-Semitism. And so we just have to break down some of those barriers, and that's just part of opening up communication before we ever get to a point where you might get an opportunity to, to uh, uh, share the gospel. So this is a slander that was brought against Paul. And verse 22, they say, they raise the question, well, what should we do about this? If this slander is out there, you're going to go walking in the temple. You're not unknown. And this is going to cause a tremendous problem. Uh, so they will, uh, the leaders of the Jewish community are going to hear about you. So we have a plan of what we're going to do. And this was stated in verse, uh, verse 33. Uh, now, 
I'll put this slide in here because on verse 23. This slide in here because Paul clearly taught that the law was good. In Romans 7:12, he says, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. I've had conversations with Christians who've been so drilled into the thinking that that anything that uh, that that supports the law is legalism this, that I had one one Christian tell me, one Christian man tell me one time that Mosaic law was just evil. And I said, you know, that's not what Paul said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul said that the law was holy and just and good. It's the misapplication of it under religious legalism and arrogance that makes it bad, but inherently it is holy and just as good and good. So there's nothing wrong with obeying the law. It's only wrong if you think it makes you any better than anybody else spiritually. In verse 23, they have a plan. We have four men who have taken a vow. Four men who have taken a vow, and uh, we want you to go with them. We want you to ex- assume all of their expenses, and that would be quite a bit. Assume all of their expenses so that they may shave their heads. This indicates that they had a Nazarene vow, which meant that you couldn't touch anything that was the product of the grapevine, no grape juice, no grapes. You couldn't even touch a grape leaf or grapevine. Um, you could, uh, they weren't to, to have a razor, touch their hair. They couldn't cut their hair, shave their beard. They just had to let their hair grow long. And then they had to maintain ritual purity for a period of time. Then at the end of the vow, they would shave their heads and then they would go through a, and then they would offer various, uh, various sacrifices. And so they've, um, they have, uh, taken this vow, and they're going to have Paul join them, which means that Paul would go to the temple with them on the first day where they would identify themselves to the priest that was in charge of the vows, and they would tell him what was going on, and that Paul would be entering into this uh, vow. He would shave his head along with them at the beginning, and then they would go through a period of various sacrifices and rituals uh, that would come up dur- during the week. So this is where this this begins. So uh, what they're suggesting is they go, they shave their head, that all may know that the things that uh, that they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you also walk orderly and keep the law. And Paul doesn't say, wait a minute, the law is bad. I'm not going to do it. He says, that's fine, that's great, because he's not an antinomian. He's not immoral. He he understands what the issue is, that this is a tradition and history issue. And when you're witnessing to people, don't get caught up in some theological red, uh, red herrings that distract you from the point of explaining the gospel to people. And uh, so he recognizes that this should ultimately be a non-issue. He's in Jerusalem. He's at the temple. As he states in uh, 1 Corinthians, he's going to be uh, all things to all men. In 1 Corinthians 9.20, he wrote that to the Jew, he became like a Jew. He followed the law in their presence so that he would not unnecessarily uh, offend them. So he is, um, he's going to go along with this particular, particular plan. Now, there are some people who come along and said that Paul was wrong in taking this vow. That this is, this is legalism. This is the Mosaic law. And I'm going to give you, uh, seven reasons or six reasons why Paul's not wrong. First of all, it's a voluntary act. He's not thinking that everybody needs to take vows or participate in vows in order to be a Christian or to live the Christian life. It's a voluntary act on his part, just as the vow he took back in Acts 18.18 was voluntary, and it's part of his tradition, part of his uh, part of his heritage. Uh, second, he's never ashamed of the fact that he participated in these rituals. The temple is still standing until we're in that transition zone between uh, at the beginning of the church age where the law is dying out. The message still offers the kingdom to Israel. 
And so God has not taken out the temple yet. So the temple ritual is still legitimate if it's done the right way and not in conflict with grace or the message of the fulfillment of salvation in Christ as Messiah. Uh, third reason that he's, uh, it's, it's valid for him to do this is it's keeping in keeping with his policy of, that he states in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to 21, that to the Jews he became as a Jew, and for those under the law he became as one under the law. He's not going to let a non-issue distract from getting to the point of, of teaching that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. Fourth, not all sacrifices, not all blood sacrifices, are atonement sacrifices in the sense of picturing Jesus' payment for sin. Uh, they te- ritual sacrifices, I've said, taught certain things about sin and about confession and about these basic principles. And so sacrifices are not, <clears throat> not inherently wrong. Sacrifices will be restored as ritual cleansing sacrifices in the millennial temple. And so this is not wrong for him to participate in, in these particular sacrifices. Uh, fifth, the purpose for this um, uh, succeeded because it showed the believing Jewish community that he wasn't hostile to the law. He wasn't teaching these things that were contrary, uh, contrary to the law. He wasn't an antinomian so that when uh, he ran into opposition and persecution, it didn't come from the believing Jewish community. It came from the non-Christian, the unbelieving uh, Jewish community. And finally, Paul's not compromising here. He is demonstrating that the rumors and the charges against him are completely false. And so because of that, and and there's some principles there for us. There are times when we have to learn that some of the things that we believe, the way things should be done, certain things like that, that if we compromise those, that somehow we're compromising the gospel. And we need to learn to understand what's first, what's second. We need to understand where the priorities are in the message and not let non-essentials get in the way of communicating communicating the gospel. And so when we come to this, at the end of this section, what we see is that... um, Paul allows for the Jews to function as Jews. And in the very next verse, in verse 25, we realize James is allowing the Gentiles to function as Gentiles. They're not under obligation to the law. He says, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we've written and decided that they should observe no such thing. They don't, they're not required to observe the law. Uh, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So they weren't imposing the law on Gentiles. They weren't imposing it on Jews either. This was just a, an individual decision based on their own culture, background, uh, and tradition. Now what happens is Paul takes these men, and the next day, verse 26 we read, having been purified with them, they entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification. So they they have gone through their they're going in to be purified and they're going to tell uh, the priest in charge when their time of purification is going to end uh, for each of them. And then they leave. So the first visit to the temple doesn't create any kind of a problem. Verse 27 we read, now when the 7 days were almost ended, The Jews from Asia, these are the troublemakers. These are the same Jews from Ephesus, from uh, Lystra, Iconium, Derbe, that had dogged Paul's footsteps all across Greece and, and were constantly stirring up the Jewish crowds against the Apostle Paul. So now some of those same Jews from Asia have shown up in Jerusalem for the feast day and they start stirring up the, the crowd against Paul to attack him. And they're crying out, verse 28, Men of Israel, help. This is a man who teaches all men everywhere against the people of the law in this place, none of which is true, but they're presenting the, the big lie against Paul. 
He's turning everybody against, uh, against the Jews, against the law, and against the people. And furthermore, he brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. Now, in this slide, what we see is a picture of the, uh, te- the Herodian temple. And out here is the outer courtyard that we see, and this was open to the Gentiles. And you can see in this picture there is a low wall uh, that is outside of the, the Nao. This is the Nao's temple itself here. Outside of the Nao's temple, there's a low wall that was a, uh, just a couple of feet high. This was called the Soric. And uh, they've even, archaeologists have even found a, a warning sign from the Soric that Gentiles are not to go beyond this point. And so this was the outer marker. Uh, uh, Jews, male and female, men and women could go inside. But then this courtyard out here is the uh, courtyard of the women. And then you had uh, another area of the courtyard here where Jewish men could go. And then you had the inner area here, which is where only the priests could go. And then the Holy of Holies here where only the high priest could go. So the closer you got to God, the uh, physically, the fewer people could actually get there. And so what they're accusing Paul of is bringing a Gentile across the line of the, of the uh, uh, Soreg and into the, uh, into the temple area itself. And this is just a, a, a falsehood. They're basing it on the fact that earlier they had seen uh, Trophimus, the Ephesian, uh, with Paul in the city, and so they're saying, well, if he was with him out there, he must have taken him into the temple. So they're just uh, saying these things in order to create uh, trauma and to cre- create a riot, and it causes a disturbance that just flows out into the whole city, and, and such that as people are screaming and yelling about it, then they're bringing more and more people are running into the temple precincts to see what is going on, and they seize Paul, and they begin to just physically... Uh, beat him. They're dragging him out of the temple area, so because they cannot shed blood inside the temple within within those uh, those those inner walls, and so they need to drag him out of the temple, out past the courtyard of the women, and then they can uh, pummel him and brutalize him. And it doesn't matter if they kill him, and that's their intent uh, is to kill him. Now, if we go back and look at our picture here. This fortress up here in the northwest corner of the temple precinct is the Fortress Antonio. Uh, I've seen different depictions. It was probably much larger, uh, much larger than that. And this is, and it was high so that the Roman uh, soldiers could look down on the temple precinct to make sure that the Jews weren't fomenting some sort of rebellion. And if something like this riot were to break out, then they could immediately intervene and bring, and restore order, which is what they did. So they're not, the, the Romans are not concerned so much with saving Paul as they are with uh, quelling uh, the the riot. And so in verse 31 we read, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, and he immediately took his soldiers and centurions. A centurion is a commander of a cohort, a century, which is a hundred. So he's got centurions, so that means he has more than one. So that means he's, they're taking at least 200 soldiers with them into the temple precinct in order to uh, shut down this riot, uh, which they do. And the commander comes in verse 33, takes Paul and commands him to be bound with chains. So he's going to put a soldier on each side of him, and he's going to basically chain him, each arm to a soldier uh, because he has, as we'll learn later on, has misidentified Paul as a well-known rabble-rouser. And so they um, they take Paul, and he begins to ask questions of the crowd as to who Paul was, what, it, what he had done, and everybody's just screaming out different things, and he can't get a, a straight answer, so he begins to take, this, take uh, Paul back uh, to the Antonio Fortress uh, because otherwise he's going to be killed by the mob. And it's at that point that Paul will stop him and and it it surprises the uh, <clears throat> legion command, legionnaire because uh, he's going to say 
um, may I speak to you? And, and he says it in Greek. So he's, he's assumed that this is a, a Jew, and now he's speaking Greek. And then we find out in verse 38, he says, Aren't you the Egyptian uh, who came up some time ago and stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul straightens him out on that as to what his identity is. And then Paul is going to ask to speak to the crowd. So we'll come back next time in verse 22 I mean, chapter 22, rather, and this is when Paul is going to address uh, the crowd, and we'll look at that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of the distinctions between grace and law, that grace doesn't mean there are no absolutes, and law doesn't mean there's, there's no grace, but both grace and law can be perverted. And grace can become antinomianism and law can become legalism, in which case they're both wrong. But, Father, we pray that we might recognize that salvation's by <clears throat> grace through faith, and that means it's dependent upon you and not upon us, and that what we need is someone uh, who dies for us, pays that sin penalty for us, that by trusting in them we can have eternal life. Father, we pray that you'd strengthen and encourage us, Uh, from the things we study in Christ's name. Amen.